Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You're listening to the Archaeology Show. TAS goes behind the headlines to bring you the real stories about archaeology and the history around us. Welcome to the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Archaeology Show, episode 146. On today's show, we talk about slave quarters in Pompeii, new thoughts on Homo Naledi after a recent reconstruction, and 2,000-year-old toilets in Turkey. Let's dig a little deeper. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. How's it going? Pretty good. How about you? Freezing cold. I think we're in winter now. I know. I think we finally found it. <laughs> Had to go north, obviously, but we got here. Yep. South <laughs> South didn't work. Carolina. Now North Carolina does work. Yeah. Although we can literally although, see South yeah. Carolina from here. In fact, sometimes I think we might be in South Carolina a little bit. We're so close to the border. I'm not convinced that we're not right now. <laughs> we definitely so. saw the North Carolina sign when we were coming in. So. Yeah. Anyway, that's where we're at right now and for the rest of the year. So it's just going to stay nice and chilly. No, not as cold as some of those northern latitudes, but there it is. So, yep. all right. Well, we've got three news articles to talk about. And one of them, this first one about Pompeii, I feel like I feel like Pompeii and Stonehenge are two things that are probably in the news all the time. And one of the reasons is for Stonehenge, it's very captivating people want to study it and it's very mysterious so there's a lot of things there's a lot of activity going on there and pompeii the same exact thing is going on except a lot of it is still covered under ash so things are literally being uncovered every field season yeah i don't know what it is about pompeii maybe it's the like ghostly shapes of people that keep being found it just like captures the imagination of the public and therefore people keep staying interested in it yeah yeah i mean there's definitely been cities, village, not cities really, but villages and things like that buried in ash before. It's not yeah. a totally unique thing, but this this one is a little bit because, I mean, it was an entire city yeah. and area, countryside, if you will, that was just covered in ash. It wasn't just the city of Pompeii. It was mm-hmm. like the entire area covered in ash. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's pretty crazy. And the actual place that we're talking about here is a suburban villa northwest of the city, which, again, you think of Pompeii. I've been to Pompeii twice. We were there just a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And I think of it as, because everybody talks about Pompeii, I think of it as the city was covered in ash. Yes, it yeah. was, but also everything else. Yeah. And I thought this one was particularly interesting because it is a suburban village or villa. Yeah. And it's not in the heart of the city. And it actually wasn't even covered in ash it, with the initial explosion, like mm-hmm. like the main part of the city was, it kind of escaped it almost. And then the next day, another like small eruption is what really did this area in. Yeah. And the people who lived in this villa were like, sweet, we made it. And then the next day, <laughs> not so much. the volcano was like, nope, taking you too. <laughs> but you'd think they would have taken that opportunity to get out. But Well, I mean, 
they, they just probably didn't have a lot of experience with it. Yeah. You know? I, I mean, mean who would, like, right? Yeah. Who, who's to know what's going on? So, yeah. and it's not like you could jump in your car and like drive really fast. I mean, they That's probably true. had time if they had left, they could have gotten out of the zone of the volcano, but yeah, uh, I don't know. Probably so, just weren't even thinking about it. They thought the worst was over. They escaped and then bam, here yeah. comes more. Anyway, this village is called the Civita Juliana, and that's kind of just a cool, cool name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and obviously, in case you don't know, we're talking about the eruption of 79 AD of Mount Vesuvius. And cool thing is, when I was back in the in the Navy, we did a cruise in the Mediterranean in 1996, and when, that was the first time I went to Pompeii. Mm-hmm. And I also took a little tour that took you on a bus, basically, or vans or whatever, to about halfway up Mount Vesuvius mm-hmm. uh, to a parking area and then you walked the rest of the way. Oh. And so I've been to the top. I've looked into the crater because mm-hmm. um, when you get to the top, you can, there's actually a little like gift shop stand at the top there was at the time. I don't know what there is now. And you could buy the same kinds of things you could buy in like the gift shop down below, but they had a sticker in them that, or a stamp in them that says bought at the top Mount <laughs> Vesuvius. And uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah. But it was really neat being up there. I mean, it was mildly smoking it's still a it's not a dormant volcano right by any means but it hasn't you know f- fully erupted like this since 79 AD. i think mm-hmm. i think there may have been some other smaller eruptions smaller since ones. then but nothing yeah. on this scale so yeah anyway uh that's what we're talking about so what was found was something that we just don't have a lot of really great examples of and that was slaves quarters mm-hmm. it's a untold story in yeah. this area and obviously romans had slaves uh everybody back in that time had slaves it's just like what you did when you conquered a people or there was somebody that you could make do your bidding for nothing yeah <laughs> you got slaves <laughs> yeah i actually was kind of interested in that because i was like well where did the slaves come from because you know slavery in the united states has a pretty clear racial story to it yeah and in other places in the world, there's often a racial, ethnic, or religious story mm-hmm. being told by why certain people are chosen as slaves, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just curious about Rome and Pompeii, and so I did do a little bit of research into that. And it sounds like the majority of their slaves did come from conquering peoples and, yeah. and taking them. So, And also a lot of Greeks, apparently. Mm-hmm. I guess Greeks and Romans were often at each other's throats as we know. And so they liked Greeks for slaves, though, because the wealthy families could use them to teach their children. Nice. Because <laughs> the Greeks were often well-educated. So, right. so there's that. And then also there's a pretty healthy, like, slave women to make more slaves, basically, because any, any child born to a female slave was also a slave. So there were actually, like, like groups of people who would gather up females and basically breed them mm-hmm. essentially to make more slaves. So like that's a pretty nasty underbelly yeah. to what was going on to all this because I'm sure none of that was consensual and it was a really horrific experience. And then of course there's the brothels that were mostly staffed by female slaves. So I mean it was a different time. Maybe they all liked it. It was just a oh, career choice. Oh boy, that's not, not the a... brothels, but like the slaves. <laughs> They're like, I think I'm gonna be a slave, Daddy. <laughs> about that great son (laughs) let's get you over to some masters yeah yeah probably not it does sound like in a big city like pompeii there's maybe a little bit of relief here and there because the streets were so crowded Mm -hmm. that when a slave had to leave the home to go do whatever they needed to do for their their owners there was some chance to like duck into a bakery or hang out on the street or whatever semblance of a normal life maybe 
I'm not. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Who knows? I read that in one article. It was speculation, of course. So sure. anyway, that was that's a little bit about what I was reading about mm-hmm. the slaves in in Rome and probably the slaves in Pompeii. So yeah, what was found in these small, although not like super small, uh, slaves' quarters were three wooden beds. Uh, there were two adult-sized ones and one child-sized one. A chamber pot, a wooden chest filled with metal and fabric items, and a chariot shaft. I would have liked mm. a little more detail. Of course, we're reading an article and don't have the paper here, but I would like to know what the metal and fabric items are. Yeah, could they survived. identify them? I, like, I don't know. Yeah. Was it just clothing or yeah, what? Who knows? Like, that could be anything, really. Yeah, and I took chariot, chariot shaft, which is a weird thing to have in there, to mean like the axle between the two primary wheels on the chariot and the chariot. Yeah. What I read is that maybe they were doing some work on it. Maybe mm-hmm. whoever, whatever slaves lived in this, these quarters were in charge of maintaining it or doing work on it or something. I feel and, like if that were the case, you'd have found a lot more like tools like, and other parts and things. But I, I got the impression that it, to me, it seemed like either, you know, the owner, uh, the owner, the master, whoever owned the slaves, mm-hmm. either just like stored the thing in there maybe. because why not their slaves quarters? Yeah. Or, or yeah, maybe, maybe one of them did take it. So, so somewhat take it home or something like that and, and see what they could do to it. It sure does seem like a weird thing to be in there. Yeah. Though, it's a so. really odd thing yeah. to be in there. So anyway, the room was very preserved as a lot of things in Pompeii are. Um, it was covered, covered in ash. Like everything in Pompeii, the actual, like wooden beds and some of the artifacts aren't actually there. It's right. their impressions that were there in mm-hmm. the ash because they've they're gone over time. You know they're just they're just not there anymore. But the the ash hardened around them, and you can pour these plaster casts inside of the uh, impressions basically and come out with it, which makes excavation in Pompeii a really interesting thing. So it leads me to believe that like once you start finding either a a less dense area of ash because maybe some of it has collapsed in, but mm-hmm. a less dense area of ash or an actual negative space where yeah. there's nothing. As a Pompeian excavator, you've got to stop right there and kind of be real careful and get to the point where you can sort of fill it with plaster. Yeah. And then see what you have. Yeah. When the it, plaster hardens. That, like from a from an actual like archaeologist excavation perspective, that does seem really crazy and a totally different approach to how how you would excavate. I can't really imagine how you do it because you're right. If you come across a negative space, you're like, okay, how do I do this? And then how do you make a plaster cast out of it without ruining it? I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how that works. It's cool though. Yeah. Another reason this is important is that we can, we can see a, again, a snapshot in time, like archeology, span you know, is what, it's what archeology span does, but it's a snapshot in time. As I said at the beginning, of a underrepresented class of people because history and stories about this area are written by the elite class of people. Mm-hmm. You know, those are, those are who's doing the writing, who's doing the storytelling, who's commissioning mosaics and, and murals and things that tell stories. And, and they're telling it in the, the story that they want to say. So whatever we found here is told from the slave's perspective, essentially. Mm-hmm. It's still the person who owns the slave's idea of what their quarters should be. However, you know, the slaves' personal things and and how things are laid out, I mean, that would have been probably their choice. So I know. That's why I really do wish we could know a little bit more about what was found in the chest, because yeah. those would clearly be items of importance to to these slaves. And I, I guess we also don't know, are they like a family unit? That's why they shared these quarters together? Or were they right. just thrown together and because, you know, there was one area for slaves and they all just live mm-hmm. there together. 
it's those are the kind of questions that I don't know that we would be able to answer without like written evidence somewhere. But mm-hmm. but it is interesting to speculate on why they were there together and what kinds of things that they that they stored and were important to them. Right. Yeah, this excavation was part of a program that's designed to combat looting in the area. Mm. Uh, it sounds like it's basically, let's get ahead of the looters and dig everything up. Yeah, that was the same story behind that chariot yeah. that we talked about oh, a yeah. couple months ago. They're they're just desperately racing ahead of the looters yeah. to find this stuff before before it's taken. Yeah, looters basically dig tunnels into the ash and, and try to steal artifacts that are, you know, you don't need plaster cast stuff. There are things that still remain, of course, mm-hmm. but that's what they do. And there's a lot of different access points, so to speak, into unexcavated Pompeii, mm-hmm. just because it's super deep. And I mean, meters and meters deep in some places. And I just don't think they can adequately protect all of it. So Yeah. And quite large, right? And yeah, it's deep huge. And it's really large. So, yeah. yeah. So last November, in fact, at this same villa, archaeologists found the bodies of two men on the, like I said, at the same villa. And they were identified, not sure how, as a wealthy landowner and his slave. That's all. Yeah, the I believe says. we talked about that article last year too when it came out because yeah. it was kind of like, well, how can you know? But I think it was by the clothing that they were wearing and mm-hmm. and the different decorative items found yeah. with them that they were able to tell. Yeah, and we just passed an anniversary of the eruption. Uh, I didn't realize. I, I always hear seventy nine AD, but I didn't know it was in October. Yeah. Yeah. The October mentions the initial eruption was on October twenty fourth, and as Rachel mm-hmm. mentioned earlier, the second eruption on October twenty fifth is actually what did these guys in. So, I'm wondering. You know, the initial eruption would have had a certain signature for the people really close to it that died in that initial eruption. But the people who died in the secondary eruption, it's like, were they just hunkered down and hoping it didn't happen again? Yeah. Or were you you seeing the people that survived that in states of, like, preparations to move? Like, were there were there wagons or chariots or something buried with all their personal effects on them? Like, they're just, like, gathering things up and getting out. Oh, like they were trying to get out? Yeah, because would they have even considered the fact that a second eruption could be happening? How much experience did they have with volcanoes? Was there Mm -hmm. rumblings after the first one that indicated a second one might be possible? I mean, there wasn't really volcanology back then, but there's really smart people back then. So, who knows whether or not they could have even anticipated a second eruption. Yeah, you would think just out of safety concerns and, you know, just a sense of caution, they would have taken off at least for a couple days while things settled down. Yeah. But, okay, like we see this in regular times whenever people are told to evacuate for a hurricane or some other major weather event. And there's always the diehards who refuse to leave their homes because it's their home and they've lived there forever and they just don't want to leave. And... Humans are humans, and I can't imagine that humans in Rome in 79 AD were any different than humans today who just don't want to leave their home. So, you know, I'm guessing they just, like, cross their fingers and hope that (laughs) that (laughs) the worst was over. Well, one thing I'm hoping they didn't have to worry about was lions. Unlike (laughs) our 300,000-year-old homo naledi child, who seems to be 
also didn't have to worry about lions. We're not sure, but lived in a cave. Let's talk about that kid when we come back. <laughs> Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code TAS. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Archaeology Show, episode 146. And we are moving down to, well, South Africa, where all the cool things are found. And... (laughs) One of the things we're going to talk about is Homo naledi. Now, Homo naledi is a branch of, not really, it's not a branch of Homo sapien. It's a branch of Homo sapien, you know, human-like species, I guess. One of the, like, earlier, yeah, earlier yeah. Hom- homos. It was one of the trees, one of the lines that developed. I'm not sure where Homo naledi fits in the, in the family tree, though, but... It's one of the lines that branched out from an earlier line that Homo sapiens is also part of. Right. That's why Homo naledi has Homo in front of it. Mm-hmm. It's human-like. There's right? a common ancestor, there, basically. There is a common ancestor, yeah. yeah. Homo naledi was first found in uh, a place called Rising Star Cave in South Africa. And anybody who's paid any attention to human evolution stuff has heard of Rising Star Cave. This place is like a lot of cool things here. And I'm just remembering... One of the cool things about Rising Star Cave that I remember from years ago was it was really hard to get into. And they had a bunch of, essentially, it was it became female academics that were down there for this excavation because they tend to be smaller. Oh. And they had to get into these cave spaces that were just ridiculously like super tight. super tiny? Yeah, to access the actual chamber in the back. Oh, wow. And, and that was just really cool. They just like, you know just went in there and, and squeezed in through these spaces and, oh my God, that, and got back in there. That sounds a little bit terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Like I'm getting a little claustrophobic just thinking about yeah. that. I would not be a good fit for that excavation. Yeah. So as with a lot of these older excavations, and again, Homo naledi lived between 236,000 and 335,000 years ago. Well, although we don't have a ton of, I guess, archaeological evidence of Homo naledi, much like a lot of human evolution, there isn't there usually isn't a, a large representative sample, mm-hmm. but it's enough. And especially when we have a skull like we have here, you can really tell the the big differences. But mm-hmm. paleoanthropologist Lee Berger, who is a 
pretty well-known paleoanthropologist. Uh, he's at the University of Witwatersrand in Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. He and him and his colleagues reconstructed a partial skull that was found 40 feet from the chamber where the original fossils were discovered. So there's a whole network of things going on in here. And they found this one 40 feet from that original chamber. Hmm. And it consisted of 28 skull fragments and six teeth. And if you click into the science news article that we have linked in here, with the first one is the article that we found. And then the, um, the next one is the science news article that that article referenced. And you can see the skull sitting in somebody's hand. Yeah. And it is just it's tiny. Know, an average sized, it looks like a male hand and the whole skull fits in his hand. Yeah. <laughs> so tiny. It's like and a this, softball. And this was a child that they think was between four and six years old. Yeah. But the size of the skull, it's like smaller than a human infant skull today. Like yeah. a newborn skull. It's it's probably smaller even than that. Mm-hmm. So it's super tiny. Yeah, and when you're looking at these, again, 28 fragments and six teeth, you'll see darker areas and you'll see lighter areas. The lighter tan areas are the actual skull fragments that they found, and the darker areas are the reconstruction portion of it. They interpolate what they think look it looked like there. So Based on like angles and stuff, yeah. like, okay, this is at this angle, and so it would have met right. this other piece, and yeah. And they know a lot about skulls. They know a lot about osteology, human mm-hmm. osteology, and paleoanthropological osteology. And, you know, it takes some time, obviously, to get the pieces right, but when you start looking at things that you know that are consistent across all species like bone thickness from one place to the next how does the thickness change especially in children it would be different looking mm-hmm. at the seams are they fused yet between different you know uh, bones and using all that evidence they're able to basically place these in a space and then construct what they think the rest of the skull would have looked like now of course that's largely conjecture a little bit mm-hmm. but based on really good educational guess educational what are the educational guesses Mm -hmm. educated guesses educated guesses (laughs) (laughs) wow i could not get that word out (laughs) so anyway it's just it's just really cool uh that they're able to reconstruct it like that and then give us a good view of it but that's a lot of paleoanthropology the papers don't come out like after the excavation they have to do a lot of analysis on a lot of different aspects of it i mean for all i know this may have been excavated years ago and they just got around to this portion of it or it took that long to reconstruct it and put some stuff together to write the paper yeah figure out what this all means paleoanthropology is a very slow Slow. process (laughs) and if you look at the the reconstructed skull you can kind of understand why because what you're looking at there is like I don't know, 75% reconstruction and only 25% Mm -hmm. actual skull fragments. So they have to spend a lot of time really making sure that they get this construction correct because you're immediately going to have people criticizing and picking it apart when you see how much of it is, is a guess. It's basically a scientist educated guess. So Mm -hmm. much of it is. So they really have to be able to like stand behind what they did and why they did it. Right. It takes time to do that. Yeah. Now the controversial bit about this paper is, or I'm sure it's controversial, you know, for a little period of time, but I guess the, the really interesting thing that the researchers think is going on here, Lee Berger was quoted as saying that, uh, first off, a lot of the things they find in caves in these areas, especially down in Johannesburg or not Johannesburg, South Africa, there's a lot of cave systems down there. Mm -hmm. A lot of caves 
are, I guess, I think they're limestone and you get water coming in from seasonal rains and it basically washes it down through. So you could have, say, a tree, a common occurrence is like a big tree growing out of the edge of a cave entrance, which is flat against the landscape. And, you know, so you're just walking across the landscape and there's a hole. Turns out that's an opening of a huge cave system underneath. So the water goes down in, uh, basically down into the water table and erodes out these big caves. Right. Well, animals would see those caves as places where they could safely and comfortably eat and store their food if they needed to for a minute. So cheetahs and hyenas and and lions and things like that, they would scavenge or kill prey and then drag it into these caves. And uh, we've got some evidence or at least ethnographic evidence or people have seen it happen of cheetahs and other things pulling their prey up into trees to be safe. And Uh then the tree overhangs the cave and then the, the parts basically fall into the cave. As the animals eating it. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah. But these, however, Berger says, don't look like they were either washed into because Rising Star Cave is actually on the coast. There's a lot of water in there. Mm -hmm. It was either it was they don't think it was washed into um, or uh, carried there by predators or scavengers. And the reason is they can't find any any evidence that these skull fragments or other bone fragments they found uh, had any sort of, you know, marks marks or anything on them. Yeah. and brains are delicious, so are delicious. you know yeah. they'd be clawing that out if they could. <laughs> yeah. So what they're actually saying, and it can't be just this one child's skull fossil that is their evidence. They they might be pulling this together from other things they found in there, but they're saying that this might be a case for deliberate ritualized body disposal at three hundred thousand plus years ago, which would be kind of game changing. That's yeah. true. I I gotta say though, like my skeptic meter like immediately goes up <laughs> at something like that. Yeah. With, be, because of the absence of evidence of predators or water damage to these mm-hmm. to these remains, therefore ritual. Yeah. I'm like, well, also couldn't this child have like crawled in the cave and and just died there too, and just yeah, you know, no reason other than he was sick and that is what happened you know maybe child probably wouldn't have been on their own or it got lost you know like there's a there's a lot of reasons why a kid Mm -hmm. in this really rough landscape of you know three hundred thousand years ago or whatever it was could have potentially ended up separated from its family and then crawled in the cave and died so right i think it's a little bit early to to say that there might be some other evidence that they're not talking about in this article or that they haven't shared yet to make them really believe that it's some kind of deliberate body disposal or burial or or whatever, Mm -hmm. but they certainly aren't mentioning it in this article. So I'm immediately skeptical. (laughs) Surprise, surprise. (laughs) All right then. Well, much like Homo Naledi, this segment is super short. (laughs) (laughs) That was really bad. You're not even segueing. You're just making a bad joke. No, that's just a bad joke. (laughs) We're going to move over to Turkey and talk talk some crap about some toilets. (laughs) Back in a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our Tee Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 146 of the Archaeology Show. And as promised, we're going to talk about some over 2,000-year-old toilets in Turkey. <laughs> Pretty cool. Why are toilets so interesting to archaeologists? I don't know. Yeah, that's <laughs> all we do is study other people's crap. I don't know what to tell you. So, I mean, like the legit answers because right. they're usually well-preserved and they yeah. people dispose of things in them. And they actually, while they can be quite disgusting to excavate, they actually can have some really great information in them. Mm-hmm. Okay, there you go. There you go. So, like a lot of ancient excavations in, I would say... You know, the Mediterranean, that area down near Turkey. I mean, the whole the whole area is just uh, lots of things that are well buried under years and years of sediment. And they take a long time to uncover. Mm-hmm. So this excavation that we're talking about near the ancient city, well, in the ancient city of Smyrna, which is located near Turkey's western coastline, what they were excavating is basically a theater area. Mm-hmm. You can see some big steps here where people would have sat, and then there's a whole row of like buildings, basically. And I don't know why they chose to highlight this in this in this article, or unless they cover an, uncover another room, researchers just go publish an article about that room that they uncovered, or you know whatever they decided the room was. Maybe that would probably be my guess because, you know, academics have to publish pretty much all the time to keep their jobs. Mm-hmm. So as they're excavating and they uncover a new area or see a new thing, then they'll they'll tell the story about that through yeah. a paper. That's just how the information gets out. Well, and, and archaeology is a very slow process, so it probably took like a whole season of excavation just oh, to. More. Yeah, just to yeah. get this room uncovered. So pausing to talk about a <laughs> yeah. lavatory seems kind of crazy, but sure. also like it represents a whole season or more of field work. So yeah, first cool thing is this theater dates from around the second century BC and was used into the fifth century AD. Mm-hmm. It just blows me away some of the time frames. Uh, I mean, In being ancient- from the United States, nothing here that was used for a long time is super old. Now, mm-hmm. some of the Native American stuff was used for hundreds of years, uh, if not longer. And that is our example of that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in this country. But there are things still being used in some areas of you know England and, and other parts of Europe that like, I mean, have been used continuously for the past, you know, five, six, seven, eight hundred years. And that's just crazy to me. Yeah. Yeah. It is totally crazy. And in the ancient world, it seems like things are used even longer than that. And it makes me wonder because like something that was in use, you know, five or six hundred years ago in Europe, it looks totally different today than it did 600 years ago when it was built, probably. We've had to do a lot of reinforcing to, you know, make it still stand properly and and all that kind of stuff. And it does make me wonder when you see a structure in the ancient world built of stone, so probably pretty sturdy, but what kinds of changes and things were done to it over the years to, to make it able to be continually used for as long as it was? That that would be an interesting topic to to look at. Yeah, I'm sure there would have to have been repair work to the stone and 
possibly even modifications. But a lot of these things, these you look at just these huge stone blocks that make up some of the rooms and the buildings here. That stuff hasn't more than likely moved. You know, right. maybe they added another row to block off a room or something like that, or to, to divide a room, but. You know, that stuff would have been pretty challenging and not really that worth it, I would think, mm-hmm. to move. But the interior decorations and stuff obviously changed over time. Maybe even some of the use and function of it changed mm-hmm. over time. But, you know, that being said, why, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. So, yeah. Well, the like ancient architecture is really hard for me to wrap my head around sometimes because we only see the stone foundations and the stone walls. and mm-hmm. But there must have been wood structures as part of it as well, right? Mm-hmm. Wood beams to hold up roofing or maybe add additional separations within the structure and stuff like that. And without having the actual wood left, it's it's hard for me to like wrap my head around what yeah. the actual building would have looked like. And also thinking about the evolution of a structure through time, like the changing up that the wood elements of it mm-hmm. would be something that would probably happen naturally because wood just decomposes and degrades over time well i'm curious too as to you know if they used it for 600 years or 700 years like why did they stop using it what what caused that you know what i mean was it an earthquake was it a you know major destruction too much to bring it in and just no no will to keep it going i mean there was probably an owner Mm -hmm. even if it was the city so to speak so Let's talk about the uh, the toilets real quick. So, I mean, the thing that the article wow. is here for. Literally yeah. never said that before, but I yes, know, right? let's talk about the toilets. Let's talk about them. So, <laughs> they were found within an enclosed area. I would hope so. And the toilet seats stood about 16 inches high, and they're not really pointing them out in the picture in this archaeology.org article, but I think I can tell which ones they are. They're, they look like they're orange with basically toilet seat holes kind of yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. They said the seats were about 16 inches high, which would seem to fit mm-hmm. for an adult using it. They had room for about a dozen seats in a U-shaped arrangement. So I'm not actually sure if what we're looking at in the picture is what I'm saying, because that is not a U-shaped arrangement. But either way, it's interesting about this thing because they're all right next to each other, right? Now, we don't know. I mean, maybe we do historically. Maybe there's pictures. But I don't know personally what kind of separation there may have been, so to speak. Like if you had a, I mean, are you just sitting there on the toilet next to somebody else? You know, I mean, or are you sitting down while if it's a man, like the man is just facing you and like peeing into the toilet? Like, <laughs> are the women and men sitting next to each other? And it makes I don't me, know. <laughs> it makes me wonder a lot of times, you know, back in these ancient times, especially in like, you know, the Roman and Greek areas, that kind of modesty that we have today just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And I, it makes me wonder if our modesty developed over time with more insular family units and, and less being around other people like that. Like we had, you know, houses that kept us indoors rather than outdoors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or did our modesty develop with, I don't know, toilet technology, like putting up walls in the stalls? Did we develop that modesty? And now we're now we're just we just don't want to show that to people. I mean, guys still pee standing next to each other. You do. In a trough. That's so true. Not much has changed there. Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely but. true. And I, I found another picture and I think that that sort of orange block is what they're saying. That's like a reconstructed. It's like it's, yeah, it's like re, it's a reconstruction of what they think that it looked like. But mm. you can see it is kind of U-shaped. Yeah. That that front part is sort of cut out there and then it would have gone all the way around the building I think is what they're saying Mm -hmm. but yeah I don't know the like it's it's a very not private (laughs) way to use the facilities but maybe that makes sense based on who these toilets were for Mm -hmm. because they are 
speculating or not speculating they had some pretty good proof that these are the toilets for the actors performing in the theater yeah rather than for the paying you know patrons of the theater so i guess i could see it being like well you're here to work and this is the toilet you get and you deal with it (laughs) yep also makes you wonder about big events like that I, i'm thinking about like the roman coliseum or something as obviously a dramatic example of this but you've got ten thousand people in this coliseum for an event they do have to go to the bathroom pretty regularly yeah mm-hmm. uh, that much hasn't changed you got to deal with it you, you just got, have to but how did they deal with it i mean we barely deal with it very well now i mean yeah. i would say we deal with it poorly now with big long lines at bathrooms and poorly functioning bathrooms i mean porta potties all yeah, that. yeah how was sanitation back then i just yeah. i don't know well i think the big trough aspect of it is the thing that made it work is you dig a deep enough hole and put the, the yeah. toilets high enough above it then everything can just drop down below and then goes into the ground yeah 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 Yeah, there was a trough about four inches deep that carried clean water they think uh, Mm -hmm. around this i'm trying to visualize what that was and what that looked like and what you actually do with it what do you just like i don't know dip your butt in the clean water trough or splash yourself or is that for your hands and face like what was the clean water trough for well maybe it was clean up (laughs) maybe it was more for keeping the actual toilets themselves clean like Maybe. maybe maybe the the water went through the trough that all the waste was dropping into so it kind of kept the area moving so you never had standing waste sitting there i'm sure somebody is typing out an email right now to tell us all about this as we <laughs> i get hope it wrong. so because this article <laughs> honestly this article was really lacking in information and it does seem to just be like an initial like look what we found report yeah but with not a whole lot of pictures or analysis or close-ups of of what it was and how it actually worked they're just saying look at the bathroom and like yeah. that's it so yeah. i would love to to find out more about exactly how this would have worked because if they were bringing clean water in to basically clean out the the waste and and then you had no standing waste and it wasn't mm-hmm. it would keep it from getting smelly like and being super gross like yeah. that is pretty innovative actually which wouldn't surprise me for you sure. know the the people of that time period they they had quite sophisticated water systems and irrigation systems in that part of the world. So that would make sense. So yeah, if anybody had it figured out, they did. So yeah, definitely. Definitely. So I think it'd be super cool to get something like this excavated and then hold a show here. You know, reconstruct it. Oh, and that would have be like so cool. A show there, yeah. There's got to be some ancient theaters where people are doing be. that. Oh, I'm sure. There's got to be. Don't in they Rome. do that in Pompeii? Because we saw one of the ancient theaters in Pompeii. I've got pictures of us standing, like, I think, I think on the top where the where the top of the seats were away yeah. from the stage. Mm-hmm. It was fully excavated. There's yeah. no reason you couldn't hold a show there. Yeah, I bet people yeah. do. I mean, yeah, that'd be really neat. It would be really cool to so. experience it just like just like they did 2000 or 4,000 years ago yeah. or whatever it is. But maybe like bring in some bathrooms because I don't think I'm using the clean water trough to dip in. <laughs> I don't think you need to dip your butt in the water. I think I'm okay? dipping in the butt. I think I'm dipping in the clean water trough. That's what's happening. Oh, God. Okay. First of all, like just, just don't poop in public. I mean, like, sometimes start, you just start have there. to. Sometimes just start there. To. Just don't do it. Well, okay. So here's the other question because, <laughs> you know, we've been to, uh, God, where was that? I guess I guess they had toilet seats 2000 years ago here in Turkey because when I was in Africa mm-hmm. uh, back in 2005 or whatever it was they have like 
they call them, uh, I think they call them English or American style toilets and then African toilets and African toilets, like in the same bathroom, you might have one that's an actual toilet and it's a very rudimentary like toilet seat thing that you sit on. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The other stalls are a hole in the ground because they prefer to just squat. squat. Mm. I mean, that's what they want to do. Yeah. Right. They know toilets exist, but they prefer to just squat. And I'm just like, it's interesting the different ideas around that because these are actual toilet seats. Yeah. And this was, and I'm sure if you're looking at, you know, the, the consumable materials that would have been on this, there was probably some sort of, you know, comfortable seat. You're not just putting your butt on the, on the rock or, or whatever this was made out of. Yeah. You know, there was probably some sort of comfort level to it. If you're going to go through the trouble of making a seat to sit on, then you're probably going to do something to make it a little more comfortable, but they definitely had the means to do that. Yeah, I mean the re- reconstruction looks like they just built like a wooden, a wooden seat, a wooden seat with yeah. the, the holes in it. So, yeah. which so, would certainly get the job done. It's simple, but yeah, we yeah. don't need it to be complicated for sure. Yeah. So, but it's just interesting around the world how people have done stuff, and it always reminds me of the Jerry Seinfeld joke about. Chinese people using chopsticks. He's like, what is with these people still using chopsticks? They've seen the fork. <laughs> like, it's not easy, oh. but yet culturally they just stick with it. Yeah. And I kind of I kind of agree. Like, you know, for some reason, like eating like sushi with chopsticks seems to work because they're sort of conducive to like a two stick sort of maneuver. And if you were to poke it with a fork, I don't think it would work as well. But and you also don't want to just like pick it up with your fingers, which is the other option. But I'm like, rice come on <laughs> give me a spoon <laughs> just a different style of eating it's more of a a shoveling yeah, but it's, your bowl is close to your mouth and it's a shoveling yeah, you I mean, know it's you. just a different cultural approach to eating but it's clearly less efficient okay well i just can't handle i it. have a feeling there's a lot of chinese people and asian people who would disagree with you I know so there's a lot of angry emails being typed right now i know and they so, probably should because <laughs> yeah send them to tristan at oh archaeology podcast network.com no i mean the way that people eat and the the way they dispose of waste and all the different things that they do it's just going to be different culturally and the way you do it the way you're brought up doing it just seems like the normal and right way and changing that i think is really difficult for for people to do so i get it all right well that was crappy so (laughs) (laughs) so we're done for this episode those were some uh, articles bouncing all around the world so yeah, if you are listening to this in real time, have a good Thanksgiving in the United States next week. Mm-hmm. If you're not in the United States, then, you know, have some turkey anyway. <laughs> Who knows? Knock. Nah, have mashed potatoes. That's what everybody's potatoes. really at Thanksgiving for. Something everybody in the world can come together with. Yeah. And I could eat some mashed potatoes with some chopsticks. So, as long as I'm not too runny. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Anyway, I'm eating Thanksgiving dinner next week with chopsticks. Oh, my mom I'm will just love that. It. You should definitely do it. I'm going to do it. Okay. All That's right. plan. See you guys next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Archaeology Show. Feel free to comment and view the show notes on the website at www.archpodnet.com. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ArcPodNet. Music for this show is called I Wish You Would Look from the band Sea Hero. Again, thanks for listening and have an awesome day. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network.
visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bro.